Good morning, everybody. Good to see you, as always. Good to see you. I think we got some people affected by uh, fever or COVID because uh, I've heard of a few today. So I know you're praying for folks. Just pray for people to get well quickly. That'd be great. Um, I told somebody today, I don't think I'm capable of getting it because I have a petrified heart. Um, so when, when you're like me, it ain't coming. So, <clears throat> All right. Hey, listen, one thing before we get into the word I want to remind you of. We've told you for a couple weeks now about next Sunday, the 22nd, we're going to have our service on the lawn. Um, yeah, it's going to be great, and, but there's some instructions that go with it. So normally when we do large event gatherings on the lawn, we prepare chairs and a big kind of formal setup. We're not doing that this time. This is going to be kind of like a service in the yard. So you bring your own blanket or you bring your own lawn chairs, you bring your own stuff, and you set up when you want to set up. The service is at 10, and, we're, and because it's connected to Thanksgiving week, you can tell the theme, uh, 2020 deserves a finish with Thanksgiving. Um, we need to just kick its little behind on its way out and just thank the Lord for all the things that he is doing and will do, right? Okay, everyone smile collectively, <laughs> and hopefully we're all well enough to be together next week. I'll be there because I, I have a petrified heart. So, um, good, you guys ready next Sunday? I'm excited about it myself. Um, all right, open your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 5. <clears throat> kind of hang in there right in the middle of the chapter, <clears throat> John 5. Solomon, the wisest man, according to Scripture, that ever lived, uh, said this, that God has made everything beautiful in its time. He also has put eternity into men's hearts. And this is the part most of us aren't familiar with, yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. <clears throat> Solomon has just given us the reason for the deep, deep longing in the human heart. God has established an eternity. Uh, he's created a God-shaped void in us. There is, in a sense, uh, a homelessness to our hearts without God. Like, I don't, I'm not fitting, I don't belong, something to that effect. We carry with us always the sense that there's something more. There's got to be something more than just what I'm putting my hands to. And even if you're one of those people who like to think deep and go far in even the pursuit of what this longing and absence is, uh, you might even conclude that there's a divine longing, but you're still stuck behind the inability to figure it out. That's what Solomon says. There is eternity created in men's hearts, and yet there is a big chasm between knowing what God is doing. And there is a reality, right? And it explains lots of things, to be honest with you. It explains our culture. It might even explain our own life. People will worship anything because of this longing. They'll worship animals. They'll worship themselves. They'll worship the earth. They'll chase the divine longing in choosing self-denial or absolutely selfishness. They'll go in most extremes. You'll find people, men who live in monasteries because they think self-denial is the only way, and then some people will give themselves to radical pleasure thinking that's the only way. Every religion in the world that doesn't confess Christ alone as Lord, Christian science, LDS, Jehovah's Witness, right? Islam, Buddha, it doesn't matter. It's exactly what Jeremiah said of Israel when they were chasing the wrong thing. They've dug out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That is what it means to have a divine longing without the ability to solve it in God on your own. You'll chase it. <clears throat> and you might sit here and go, why would anybody do that? 
I mean, you, you might pick one of those examples and go, well, that's just crazy. That's just crazy. Why would someone choose that? Well, it's what Solomon was saying. We were all born restless and blind. Therein you have the problem and the tension, right? <clears throat> and the reality of it is, and what we've been discovering in John's gospel, is that you and I will never find the divine unless the divine finds us first. It just won't happen. And in the essence is the story of John's gospel. The whole thing is about the divine coming to the blind. And uh, John writes about this divine word coming to this earth and calling his people. And most of you sitting in this room probably are very familiar with John's story, his gospel. Some of you maybe not so much. Um, either way, you probably know some core things about this book, this book we're reading. It's a good news story. You might even know that. Good news for lots of reasons, because it tells about love, and it tells about forgiveness, and it tells about a savior, and it tells about healing. And so you look at that and go, oh, good news. It's a wonderful story. But there's also this crazy tension that's always grinding in the background of the gospel. Tensions like hate and pride and stubborn unbelief, and then there's this big looming cross at the very end of it. Why is there this picture of love, this pursuit of God for the, you know, the empty soul of man, and why is there this mess? Why is this tension here? Well, all of it, every bit of it, is the story, the narrative of Jesus come to this earth, and it's the story that John tells in his gospel, and it's also played out in a very particular form in chapter 5, which we started last week, so let me just back up, and we'll run through this story quickly so you know why Jesus is saying what he's saying to us today. Chapter 5, it begins with a story about an invalid man, you know this, right, who spent his life, 38 years, sitting by a pool of Bethesda, hoping in a superstition that if someone gets him to the water, if he can find himself into the water, when the waters are stirred, that possibly, just possibly, there'd be a healing for this man. Jesus shows up, looks at the man, says, rise, get up, take up your mat, and walk. Well, he told him that on the Sabbath day, and therein lies attention. So you would look at the first part of that story and go, all good, right? How could that possibly be any bad? An invalid for 38 years, finds his healing, Jesus does the work, end of story, right? Should be all good. Well, it's not good um, because the religious leaders have a problem with this man, get this, carrying his mat on Sundays or on the Sabbath. It's a big problem. They also ultimately have a problem with Jesus, everything that he said and everything that he did, big problem. So let's pick up in verse 15 and 16, and I'll show you how this tension builds, and then you'll know why Jesus responds the way he does. The man went away and told the Jews, these were the men who were asking, uh, that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing things on the Sabbath but Jesus, Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. It seems like, that, at least that last sentence of verse 17, such an innocuous statement, to be fair. It, it, uh, but it wasn't. In just 10 short words, at least as far as our English version goes, Jesus scandalizes the people listening with two primary thoughts in these 10 words. One is that he is God, and he has the authority to decide what to do with the Sabbath. 
Those two declarations and those 10 words are what scandalized the whole thing. And if, you just, if it just glosses over your mind, well, that doesn't sound that way to me, I don't get it, well, you need to know how the Jews felt about it. Look at verse 18. This is exactly how they heard it. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself what? Equal with God. Everyone got it. Those were scandalous words. So, Jesus being equal with God, if you, if you remember, is how this whole gospel narrative started. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was with, and the Word was. He's not pulling punches, and he's not been hiding. This is the declaration, and this is what we're going to prove. We're in chapter 5, and Jesus is coming out in his first public discourse to say, I am. And everybody was bothered by it. It's an absolute certainty. <clears throat> so here you have in verses 19 through 47, this first like public sermon really on establishing his authority um, as equal to the Father and with all authority. So if you see even in your text, you might even have headings in your Bible that say something like this. Mine does. The authority of the Son, that's verses 19 through, I think, verse 29. And then the second heading would be witnesses to Jesus. Basically, witnesses to his declaration of his authority as equal to the Father. That's in the last part of chapter 5. <clears throat> so that is the intention of the rest of, of this chapter. The first section is pretty obvious. It is Jesus tells us how we can actually know God and that God the Father is revealed in the Son. And that's super important. I'm going to talk about that this morning. Second section is just the evidence from witnesses, testimonies that declare him so. You will see names like he references John, the Baptist. So the very works are a witness. The Father is a witness. The Scriptures are a witness. Moses is a witness. On and on again. These are the witnesses to what he's about to say about his authority equal to God. Ready? Okay, that's where we're at. I'm going to break down this first section, and this is, might be all that we get done today, in three simple parts, it defining and defending his authority. One is that the son does what the father does. That's pretty easy to figure out. The second one is the son has the power of life. And then the third one, and the last one, is that the son has authority to judge. And that's how Jesus lays out really the trouble that the Jewish leaders are having with him. Like, you want me to tell you about my authority? You want me to tell you about my equality with God? And he puts it out there in these forms. So let's pick it apart one after another. Um, the first part is the, kind of the, the statement that the son is equal to the father. Verse 19 says this. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, or absolutely, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. In other words, Jesus and the Father share the same actions. They're doing the same things. Very profound truth. Everything God the Father does, Jesus does. And everything Jesus does, the Father does. What's the conclusion? Tell me. Jesus is... Okay, they heard it that way. That's where this is going. They're going to kill him because they think that's a blasphemous statement, but it's not a confusing one. We share the same actions. We do the same things. In fact, in verse 17, if you back up, there's a little bit of a teaser to how extended this actions involve. Um, it's not just what Jesus is doing walking around in, in Israel in that day. It applies to kind of prior work. Verse 17, he says, my father is working until now. There's a past implication here of Jesus' involvement, which fits with other things we know 
that the scriptures teach, like what Paul says in Colossians 1. For in him, that's Jesus, all things were created. Where was Jesus in the beginning? Making all that is and holding everything together by the word of his power. Jesus shares in all the actions of God. And these men, and some men even in our day, are unfamiliar with that shared action. Let me show you something else they share. It's the first part of verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. They share love. Perhaps you're familiar with how John will unpack even some of these ideas as we go along. But in chapter 14 of this very gospel, Jesus says this, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. It's interesting um, that that word love in John 14 that I just, just quoted for you is a different word for love that we see here. That, that word love is the most predominant version of love mentioned in the New Testament. 200 times this version of love is used in the New Testament. It's the word agape. Have you heard of the word agape? Uh, yeah, most, most people who've been in church any length of time have heard the word, whether they know the depth of its definition or not. But let me just give you a quick gloss uh, about that uh, word, agape. It is a sacrificial love. It's a voluntarily suffering kind of love. It's a willing to choose for the greatest good, a faithfulness, a commitment kind of love. And you take that essence and you just build on that. That is agape love. And clearly when you see love mentioned as it refers to Jesus in the New Testament, that is his story. That's like reading his journal. That's who he is, sacrificial and caring for the greatest good, commitment, faithfulness. That is the agape love of Christ. But here you have in chapter 5, verse 20, another version of the word love, and it's the word phileo. And maybe you know this word as well. But this word is a typically uh, kind of that friendship word. It is a loving friendship that really delights in sharing everything. Now, there's a little bit more nuance to that, but that's generally the truth of it. So you get what John is saying here, or what Jesus is saying, and John is repeating for us here. Jesus is presenting a connection to the Father through this word of love that equals we share all things. And, and he's making it pretty plain. It's simply speaking of the shared deity that Jesus has with the Father. We share everything equally. There's no difference. Everyone got it. Now, let me just stop and ask the question, maybe an assumption. Why does this matter? Well, why should it matter to you? Let me just break it in two pieces, okay? Because I always think there's two people, two sets of people in our room. There are people who follow Jesus and you know it and you love him and you confess him. And there are other people who don't. Whether you think you do and you don't or you don't and you know you don't, those two basic groups are always represented in every church service that I've ever been in. Let's deal with this first one, this idea of the people who don't know Jesus. Let's call that the world, all right? Perhaps it's you. Perhaps it represents how you feel about things or see things. You ask fundamental questions based on the reality of what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There's eternity created in your heart, and you're trying to solve the problem. You're trying to fix the equation, and you've got this divine longing. You know nothing about it, no, no way to solve it. And so you ask questions like, is there a God? And how could I possibly know him if there is, Right? How could you ever know what he's like? That's the first group. There's attention. The second group of us is the people who would claim that we know Jesus, that we love him. And the reason why you can think of things of God and be comforted as opposed to terrorized, the answer 
for both groups is the same answer. It's Jesus. To those of you who don't confess Christ and you're going, is there a God and what's he like? Jesus. To those of you who confess Jesus and you're not walking around cowering in fear at the thought and the concept of God, one word, Jesus. It's the same answer for both groups of people. 1 John 4 says that God is love. You know this, right? God is love, and that God manifested that love among us by sending Jesus into the world, i.e., he wanted his love to be known, so he sends his love in the person of Jesus. You want to know what he's like? He's love. You want to know what his love looks like? It's Jesus. It's as clear as that. The Son is equal to the Father. All right, look at verses 20 through 22. For the Father loves his Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. The uh, Jews knew their scriptures. Uh, again, another example of what we could read and never have it even register with us, but the fact that Jesus is saying something about him having authority with life and authority with judgment, everyone there had a problem with this. They knew what the scripture said, Deuteronomy 32, that this is God speaking, I myself am he, there's no God beside me. I put to death and I bring life. Every Jewish mind understood that the only source of life, the one who gives life, is God only, Jesus then says, and I got that. You get it, right? It's a big deal. And then he goes on. Beyond saying, I bring life, I am equal to the Father in bringing life, they also understood that judgment, all judgment, belonged to God, the Father. Again, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, judgment belongs to who? You remember this? It belongs to God. And Jesus says, no, it belongs to me. What do you think he's saying? We're the same, equal to the Father. So what's the point? Look at verse 23, I'll tell you the point. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You want to know the point? Worship. Worship's the point. It's always been the point to honor him. By the way, I know it's no news to you, but it's... uh, It's always been trendy somehow to be okay with God or a concept of God and reject Jesus. It's exactly what the Jews are doing. We're okay with God. We're not okay with you. That's what the world does. It's what history has done. And Jesus makes it really clear. You can't have it that way. You can't honor God without honoring me. I am the way to the Father. You got to honor him. Church, how do you honor Jesus? What do you think is the way you honor him? Now, a lot of people go down a list of actions. So they go, okay, well, if I'm going to honor him, and I'm not saying this is completely false, I'm just saying the way we instinctively think is how do you honor anybody? Well, I kind of, I move, I act, I do, right? And I suggest to you that's a part of a kind of a so what to what you do, but what you do is really basic and profound. What do you do to honor Jesus? You believe him. 
You believe him. You listen to him. You're formed by him. You submit to him. You understand that's how you honor him. You confess that there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. It's the last song you sang. No other name on earth is worthy. Right? It's what you confess. He alone. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father except through Jesus. How do you honor Jesus? How do you honor the Father? By accepting his Son completely, without reservation, without condition, without debate. You submit to the biblical Jesus. In other words, you cannot be okay with the concept of God and reject anything that Jesus says or does. It's not acceptable because he is God. Make sense? Simple math. That's how it works out. All right. You want more proof of his deity? He moves on. He starts talking about his power of life. Let me just stop before we get into the actual verses here um, and suggest to you that this is when you probably should be really sitting up and leaning in to uh, what we're about to look at. Because everyone here, everybody here wants life. Life is why you do what you do. Even the very stupid things you do is because you want life. You understand that, right? Every explanation for everything, good or bad, you ever have thought about or has ever been done to you is explained by someone who's choosing a version of life. This will make me happy. So in our desperation, we try anything. By the way, just so you know, our world is built on selling you life. That's all it does. You know, we're coming into the new year. Get ready for the weight loss programs. They're coming. Every, every sports show, it'll be get, lose 100 pounds. It'll all be there because you need a new you. Because you're not good enough. You're too big, too sloppy. So do these things and drink this stuff and eat that thing and stop that thing and you'll become a new you because you need a new you. You need life. Or <laughs> we got this new election. Put that one on. Something new, some better direction. New job, new spouse, new drug, right? Everything is selling itself as a way to find life. And here's why you need to listen to this. Jesus says it, and it kind of ends the conversation. He says that he is the only source to life. So uh, be, uh, no harm, no foul that you're hunting for it. You're wired to try to find it. Let me just tell you where it ends. Everything will frustrate you and hurt you except for, say it, say it, Jesus. Jesus. He's life. Look at verses 24 through 26. Truly, truly, or absolutely, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. That's a pretty powerful statement. So what kind of life are we talking about here? I mean, clearly he's saying that life has been granted to Jesus. Jesus has life in himself. What kind of power of life does Jesus possess? Let me break it down in three things. I'm probably familiar with this. The first one, these are my words, um, it's a can't resist you kind of life. 
It is, in other words, a sovereign life that Jesus offers. Verse 24, pretty profound, when he says, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So many people have misunderstood this passage, and they read it like a transaction. Like you do something, and you get something from him. That's how you see this, right? Like, like it works this way. Like life is to be gained as a reward of believing. So you just, you just wait and you wait and you earn and you learn and you get all this stuff in your head and you finally make this willful sovereign decision to go, okay, God, I'll let you in. That's how this is going to work. That's not what he's saying, okay? Not at all. First of all, it's really interesting to note that when John uses the word or here, hearing or believing, they're synonymous in his mind. One isn't kind of a way to another, hearing a way to believing. They're both saying the same thing. And secondly, probably more powerfully here, is the verb before eternal life is a present tense verb, which is better read, will have life. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that those who have life uh, will hear and believe. See the sequence. Life comes before hearing and believing. That God has to wake up your dead ears and your dead mind so that you can hear and believe. It comes one way, not the other. You don't have enough life within you to hear and believe without somebody helping you. Divine help. How, what kind of life does Jesus give? It has to be sovereign life or there is no life. You understand, left on your own, left with just what you have between your ears, you've got no shot to sort it out. If God doesn't drive, dive into time and space and divinely open up my mind and give my dead heart a new beat, there's no shot. It's sovereign life or it's no life. It's exactly what the scriptures teach. I mean, if you read the end of the story, right, when we get to heaven, there's this moment, John, in Revelation chapter 7, where the multitudes are gathered around the throne and they're crying out, salvation belongs to you. Not to me, not to my wisdom, not to my experience, not to how much I sorted out or how committed I was to you. Salvation belongs to who? We can do this better. Who? Yes. John 6, we'll see this in a little bit. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. Paul said this, Speaking of God's words to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion, so then it depends, depends not on human will or exertion, but on the will of God and the mercy of God. That's profound. And that's the part of the life that Jesus is referring to that he gives. He gives us life, and it's this, this kind of sovereign life. But there's another part of this life, and it's a life that won't disappoint. In other words, it's an abundant life. You ever heard of that phrase before? The life in Christ is an abundant life. I'm certain you have. Look at 25 and 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to also have life in himself. What Jesus is referring to here is the new and growing life that Jesus brings to spiritually dead people. So you're spiritually dead. He sovereignly opens your eyes. From that moment on, you're growing into the image of Jesus. You're becoming like Christ. You are experiencing the abundant life. The verb uh, before the word life here is a future tense, which also helps to, to explain the direction. Well, what does it mean? It's pretty simple. That Jesus is referring to the abundant walk of the faith that we have, this, this version of life. We live now in Christ Jesus. 
It's exactly what Jesus says in John 10. We'll see that as well in the coming months. I have come that they may have life and have it more. Yeah. He's just not talking about tomorrow. He's talking about now. There's a version of life you and I get this side of heaven. It's called the abundant life, the joyful life, the peaceful life. That's what Paul was talking about when he was speaking in 2 Corinthians about the new creation. He's talking about us becoming a new creature. In Galatians, he was talking about living in us, Christ living in us by faith. In Philippians 1, it is the good work that Jesus began in us that he will bring to completion. Part of that becoming complete is the process of becoming complete in this lifetime, this abundant life, this new version of life and living. Now, there's two aspects to the life of Jesus that he gives, that he has sovereignty over, that he is God over. He gives a sovereign version of life, and he gives an abundant version of life. But probably what stuck out to you the most is this third one and last one, and it's the life that can't be lost. In other words, the eternal life. That's what he says pretty clearly. Look at 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You've heard this before, I'm certain, uh, how these three aspects of salvation kind of work themselves out that Jesus gives. We were saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. You ever heard that outline, the way you understand this complete work of salvation? Not only once and for all in Christ, how we are being changed now and how we have a hope for tomorrow. All of that is at play here. But this last one of being saved in the future tense is what Jesus is talking about here. It's exactly what you know of John 3.16. It's what everybody, every football game this afternoon will know of John 3.16. For God so loved that he gave. Why? So that man would not perish but have ever lasting life. That is the version of life that almost everyone raises their hand for. Many people go, stop short. I don't want the sovereign one. I don't want the transformation one. I'll take the future one. I want that one. Let me do whatever I want now, and I get fire insurance. Perfect. That's how this works out. To have life from Christ and in Christ means something profound. It means we possess the life of God himself. Now stop and listen again, because I know sometimes at the end of a sermon you can kind of fade away, and I want you to lean in, okay? To say anything that you have a future life in Christ means you possess the life of God. Now tell me about that life. You want to talk about an understanding of eternality or the permanency of our future? God himself possesses an indestructible life, an eternal life, and you and I have in Christ a life as sure as God himself. Think about that. Staggering. Staggering. This version of life is not anchored on you, how smart you are, how committed you are, or how much you've done, or how much you will do. It's, it, it's absolutely certain because of your confession in Jesus, and he holds on to you, and it's so certain, it's as certain as the life of God. It's profound. Eternal life. A life that can't be forgotten by Jesus. A life that can't be forsaken by you, which is typically how people wander away from God. They think that somehow they've crossed a the line they can't return from. That isn't true. 
and a life that cannot be taken by anything. This is what the Apostle Paul says, and this blows your mind. It blows my mind. I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's it. Nothing can separate us from that eternal life. It's absolutely certain. Okay, we've got one more thing to mention here um, in this trifecta of authority um, that Jesus shares. We've got already equal with the Father's actions. We've got the power to give life, and now we have this authority to judge. I'm going to back up and read through 27 through 29, and I want you to listen for the judgment part of this, okay? We've seen the life aspect, but let's see the judgment part of this. He says he's given him authority to execute judgment. So who has the authority? Jesus. And his authority to do what? Judge, Okay. Because he is the son of man, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This section is, in my opinion, pretty simple to kind of sort out. Um, Just by a very simple read, you can figure out at least several true things that he's saying here. First one, making this assumption, that you read these few verses and you realize that death isn't the end. In spite of what you've heard people say, like, oh, you just kind of live this life, and then poof, annihilation. You don't think anymore. Permanent sleep, yeah, whatever. Whatever people think. Well, clearly, what Jesus says here, the one who has authority over life and judgment, says, no, 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 it's not the end, not at all. Everyone lives forever, believers and unbelievers. That's the first thing that you read from this passage. There's a resurrection for both those who believe and those who don't. Now, here's a second thing that should stand out to you. Jesus says there's two kinds of eternal life. He mentions the resurrection of life and the resurrection of judgment. Do you see that? Are we getting sleepy? I'll turn on the air. All right, hang in there with me, all right? Here's the resurrection to life, and it's just going to be us adding on to a little bit of what we've already said about the life that Jesus offers, but I think it's profound. I read one writer, and he kind of laid it out as a really a good way to see what God in Christ is offering us in, the, in this uh, future tense. So he starts with a, an understanding in Genesis 2. And if you remember your scriptures, Genesis 2 is where this thing all goes bad. Sin in the garden. Man sinned. And when he did, text tells us, he died in several kind of specific categories. One, his spirit died immediately. As soon as he sinned, he went off to hide from his creator. Perfect fellowship, no fellowship. His spirit died instantaneously. But as soon as that happened, his soul began to die over time, like, you know, ours do when we don't walk with Jesus. Our life gets progressively more heavy and more dark and more, our soul just fades away. And that happened to man as well. And eventually, you know how this ends, he dies physically. Spirit immediately, soul over time, eventually physical death. So how does God save? What is the salvation that he's talking about here? Well, when he, resa- when he saves, this, is, this I think is just so encouraging. He replaces each part that we've lost in the sequence in which it was lost. So how does he save you? He saves your spirit first. You know the thing that died immediately? He brings to life immediately. How does he save 
after he wakes you up and saves you spiritually, he begins to transform your soul and brings life to your very soul over time. And what does he do ultimately? (laughs) Someday, someday when he calls the dead to life, he will resurrect you with a new body and connect it to your soul and spirit who are already resurrected and you will have eternity. You understand? The the wonderful part of this is that his commitment to finish all that good work is profound. It also explains why there's just never quite sorting it out until then. Because it's not full resurrection until it's all accomplished, right? When we get back to the way God intended it to be, not only will our spirits have new life and our souls have new life, but we'll have new bodies to go with that. And then it's complete. It's all done. And that is the resurrection of life that Jesus is referring to here. And he has the authority over it. That's a profound truth. That's a wonderful, wonderful truth. So you can tell, I'm saving the best for last. There's a last judgment here. This is the one nobody wants to talk about. And I'm sorry, I'm giggling because I was kidding and you didn't laugh. So (laughs) I got to take the tension off here. This is the part where it gets intense. There's another resurrection, and it's one of judgment. Please look at me. Listen. Even if what you do with it is reject it, listen. Because I'm about to tell you life words, and you need this. Every person in every chair needs this. In John 3, we've already read that Jesus said, whoever believes in him will not be condemned. The word condemned there that he uses is what you won't get if you believe in Jesus is the word for judgment that he is talking about here. It's the same word, condemnation. It is a uh, brutal but simple reality. Let me tell you why this is a really big deal. It simply means an eternity of existence without God. And in your mind, I I can almost predict what some people are thinking. I haven't lived with God already. No harm, no foul. Not going to bother me. And I will beg to differ. Because even you, if you reject God, right now, right now as you sit, are experiencing the kindness and the benevolence of the Father Creator who keeps this thing spinning for you. Right? Keeps your brain active. Keeps your lungs working. Keeps your eyes seeing. The Father does that, even for people who shake their fist at heaven. He's that kind of Father. The scriptures tell us that God is the only source of good. The only source of good. So all the things you take for granted, like your health, just the ability to smile and enjoy things, your family, being creative, having eyes to see beauty and to see sunsets and sunrises. Joy, happiness, sunshine, sanity, clear thoughts, forgiveness, the good. I could, we could go on and on forever talking about good things we experience. Judgment simply means an eternity without any of that. is bad. Fear, confusion, insanity, suffering, trouble, darkness, intense sadness, and on and on that list goes. 
without the goodness of God in eternity will be hell. And Jesus has authority over judgment. That's the judgment that Jesus brings to all who do not honor him. You might say, why? And I would simply say, because he's God and he's holy and sin matters to a holy God. And in his great kindness and love and affection for people, he extends your breath for your entire life as you get to hear sermons like this about Jesus and that you come without effort and you just simply believe and confess and you go free. He's patient, not wanting any to perish. So how do you respond to something like this? To those of us who love Jesus, these words are very serious, but they're very comforting. They are to me. Because you know about the superabounding grace and forgiveness of Jesus. Doesn't matter what you are or where you've been or what you're inclined to do, His grace is more. Now, right there, just a cue for us to learn church in the future, that's when you say, Amen. Because that is an unbelievable truth. You can't out sin His grace. The reason why the future God doesn't terrify me is because his grace superabounds every day for me and for you. But to those who don't love him, these are serious words. But you're stuck. You're stuck with denial and fear. What if what if God would right this second open your eyes? What if there's this crack in how you're feeling or how you're seeing things or perceiving things and you suddenly go, oh, wow, I get, I'm a problem. I don't have all the answers, but I want more than I have. What if God is opening your eyes? What should you do? It's so profoundly simple, but it's revolutionary. Confess. <laughs> Confess your sin Stop saying it's somebody else's fault. Stop saying that it isn't you. Stop saying you're a victim. Just say, God, I'm a sinner. Just call it like he calls it. You were born in iniquity. It didn't get better after your birth. Confess your sin. Confess Jesus. He is the Savior who came to this world on a rescue mission for you and me. He hung on a cross and he stood in the pathway of God's fierce wrath for my sin. And he took every single drop so that I could go free. Confess Jesus. Believe that he is God who gives life. And here's the promise of scripture. Now I know that didn't sound like much, but it's profound. You will be saved. Here's what Romans 10 says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It is that amazing. It is that true. And everything is that absolute. Why? Because Jesus is God. And sin does matter. And he, by his own work, has provided a way for us. You want to thank him? Let's pray. God, thank you for just the profound way in which you extend yourself and give grace to us and love us in Jesus. Everything we need 
is in him. Everything that was preventing us from finding the name of the divine was given in him. Every way in which we may know the way you are is seen through him. And every way in which we have confidence for tomorrow and for today is seen in him. What do we do? We honor him. We honor Jesus, the Son. All praise and glory and honor go to him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.